You can turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 12. Again, the story's been a little bit mixed up, back and forth between narrative and commands and instructions about feasts and holidays and and all of that. But the moment has finally arrived. We're here, the Exodus, or I should say what most people think when they think of the Exodus. The moment when Pharaoh and the Egyptians finally drive the people out of Egypt. The following text is one of the most controversial texts in all of Scripture. And the controversies are legitimate. They they are things that we as believers need to wrestle with. My aunt's uh, husband is a secular Jew. And this must have been back in 2006. We had a family reunion and he and I were chatting. Uh, He's atheist, Jewish, but atheist. He doesn't believe in the word of God at all. And he challenged me. He challenged me on this text, on the Exodus. How could so many people, up to two, between two and three million is what is estimated based on the biblical text. How could so many people have come out in the Exodus? And it's a good question and one I was completely unprepared for. Because there's tensions, not just from archaeology and from scholars and from skeptics and outside the text, but there's tensions from within the biblical text itself. And these are controversies that we as believers must not just dismiss. We must wrestle with them because they are in the text. And God reveals them in the way that he desires to reveal them. How many people were in the Exodus? How long were they in Egypt? The route that they took on the Exodus, the Red Sea, all of these things that we're going to encounter, we need to have an understanding of this. There are some what appear to be contradictions in Scripture. And skeptics will challenge us on these things. And your view of Scripture must incorporate what's taking place here, the details as they're revealed by God. However, that's not what we're going to focus on today. We're not going to get into the academic aspect of the text. Here's what we're going to do. We're not going to dismiss it because answers are out there. Research is out there. But for the sake of of today and for the text, we're not going to discuss that today. So if there is enough interest, I've spoken with Pastor Joshua, if enough people express interest, we'll set aside a Wednesday night at D Group to discuss the controversies surrounding some of the details revealed in this text. So if you're interested, speak to Pastor Joshua, speak to me, and we will sort it out. If you can't come on a Wednesday for good reason, then I'd be happy to sit down with you and go through those controversies with you independently at a time that is is suitable. But we want to read the story the way God intended the story to be read. Too often we approach the scriptures with a a post-scientific worldview. 
But that's not how the scriptures were written, and that's not to whom the scriptures were written. So we want to do justice to the text itself, to read the story as it was intended. Not scientific, but theological. But there are also some theological controversies in this text. 430 years in slavery... God's people, to whom he made incredible promises that they would be fruitful and multiply, spend a long period of time in slavery, suffering. Some of them spent their entire lives living and dying in slavery. What kind of God would do that to his people? Here's a theological controversy. Is God good? That he would allow his people to live and die, some of them their entire lives, without ever seeing his promises fulfilled? So not only must your view of scripture incorporate the details of the text, but your view of God must incorporate the details as they're revealed in the text. Because this is his story. And he's revealing to us what he wants us to know about himself. And it's ironic, these controversies call into question the very meaning of this text itself. Namely, whether or not God is good, and whether or not God is powerful enough to keep his word. And this isn't the first time those questions have been asked, is it? The first time those very same questions were asked is at the beginning of humanity. Is God really good? And can we trust his word? And so the human condition continues. And this story is a story to reveal that, yes, in fact, God is good, even in spite of the suffering of his people. And yes, God does keep his word. He is reliable. But I want to look today at the human element of what's happening. You've probably seen the movies, right? This is all the plagues, everything that's happened up until now, building up to this point when they're finally set free and in fact driven from Egypt. What feelings, what emotions would be going through your mind in that moment? What would you be feeling? Joy? I mean, it would be something of a celebration, right? (laughs) But now you've got to leave. And it says in the text that they had prepared nothing. You've got to get out of Egypt with what you can carry on your back or perhaps strapped to the back of whatever pack animal you own. Or if you've got a handcart, stick it in there. They are refugees. And the life of a refugee is not easy. Chaos? Confusion? It's not like they did a dry run of the Exodus. It's not like they had practiced this, how it's going to go down, and suddenly you've got to find all your family, your extended family, your friends. You've got to, you've got to gather. You've got to... How are we going to go? How's this going to work? It's not as exactly as if Moses was a trained commander at this stage, and the people trained followers. So this is going to be chaos and confusion. The human element. 
I've come to appreciate uh, history in the last couple years, um, and, and there's one particular, he, he doesn't want to be called a historian, but he is a historian podcast that I listen to, and he's done several uh, very meaningful podcasts that have, have deepened my appreciation. What he does so well in these podcasts is called Hardcore History, Dan Carlin. What he does so well is he deals with the human element of history. Because all of us, you either love history or you hate history, right? And it seems like it depends on, on your history teacher. If your history teacher was all about forcing you to memorize names and dates and that kind of thing, history's boring. But if you hear the stories of history, history becomes exciting. And it's interesting, this is what God does. He does include dates and details and times and names, but he tells a story, a magnificent story. One of the greatest tragedies of all time, World War II, the Holocaust, the concentration camps, which, by the way, did you know concentration camps were in the modern era, invented in South Africa during the Boer conflict. Concentration camps of World War II were, you could say, perfected. They had both labor camps and death camps where people went to be slaves or people went to be executed. Auschwitz is the most notorious of the death camps. Six million Jews, plus millions of other so-called undesirables, handicapped people, racial minorities, ethnic groups, religious minorities, were executed during the Holocaust. They were doing experiments, medical experiments, as if they were lab rats on human beings. Some of these people spent years of their lives in these death camps. The suffering was real. The heartache was real. The anxiety was real. The hardship, the death, the stench was real. Some of them tried to escape. A few succeeded. Some found the suffering to be so awful that they intentionally made an escape attempt just so that they could be shot by the guards. Suicide by guard. Could you endure such suffering day after day, wondering when your turn for the gas chambers is next? The temptation even to help, to make your lot in the camp a bit easier? What would you have done? At the beginning of lockdown, I came across two books. And because I had some free time, I got to read them. It's called The Tattooist of Auschwitz, and then Silke's Journey is the second book. And together these books form a volume tracing the lives of three people who went through the Auschwitz camp. Together, I would say, they are in my top ten books of all time. Incredible story, based on true stories. These people actually lived, and and the, the writer of this book interviewed these people to record their stories. 
Leo Sokolov was a Slovakian Jew who was taken to the death camp at the beginning, even before full-on war had been declared. And because he had a gift in languages and had been educated, somehow he fell into the job of being the tattooist. When the Jews were marched into the camp, he was the one putting the number on them. It was hard, obviously, in many ways. He met a girl at the camp, another Jewish girl, another Slovakian Jew, and he fell in love with her. And through this story, which takes place over the years of World War II, it tells the story of the pain and the heartache and the small joys and the hopes and the, the dreams and the lack of hopes and dreams of these three people, particularly, the first book, particularly these two, Lael and Gita was the girl. And she refused to tell him her surname. They fell in love, and for years they were dating in the prison camp. But she lived in the women's side, he lived in the men's side. Only because of his position as tattooist was he even allowed to cross over to the woman's side, and that's how they carried on their relationship. And this whole time, dreaming, hoping that one day they could be released, one day they could be together in marriage. And she wouldn't even say her surname, because to to give her name would be to hope. And she was too scared to hope that the suffering would ever end. Perhaps you can relate to that. Perhaps your life has been hard. Perhaps you're wondering about this God who says that he saves, who says that he's good, who makes all these promises of Scripture. And yet your life or what you observe of this earth doesn't seem to match how he reveals himself. You're not alone. The Israelites had that problem, didn't they? Do you remember in in slavery? In slavery they cried out to God. Exodus chapter 2, they cried out in their pain and suffering. And God remembered and he heard. They invoked the covenant and he restored the Eden covenant in that moment he came down. He did the opposite of what Adam and Eve did, and he was faithful to the covenant. And so he comes and he appears to Moses, and Moses goes through his struggles to believe, to trust. Will God do this? And at the end of Exodus chapter 4, finally Moses has seemingly come to a place where he's willing to obey. And he comes and he meets his brother Aaron and he tells Aaron what Yahweh had said. And then together Moses and Aaron go to the elders of the Israelites. And they tell them, it says, all the words that Yahweh had told Moses and the people worshipped. Because now we're going to be saved. So then Moses goes to Pharaoh, right? And everything just works out perfectly. Now Moses goes to Pharaoh and things get worse. They had finally begun to hope and things only get worse. And again, maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you've said, I'm, I'm going to trust God. And then the moment it seems you step out in faith, God smacks you upside the head with some other trial. In Exodus chapter 6, God says, now I've got Pharaoh right where I've won him. And I'm going to set you free. And I'm going to make you my people. And I will be your God. And we will live together. 
And Moses tells the people, and it says the people would not listen to Moses because of the harshness of their suffering. And maybe that's where you are today. You can't even picture hoping, trusting that God will save because it seems every time you've done that, life only lets you down. Do I dare to hope in the midst of pain? Do you know what you need? You don't need a hug. You don't need a pat on the back. You don't need to hear you can do it. You need to hear God can do it. You need a bigger view of the salvation of God Almighty. That's what we need in our hardship. We need to see his majesty, his mission, his methods, his man. He says, I will be your God. You will be my people. I will live with you. This is what we're seeing in the Exodus story. You need to see this in your life. And so we need to pray. We need to pray that we would be able to see Jesus today. Our Father God, we come and we ask that in the midst of the pain and suffering of life, in the trials and the anxieties, wondering, will it ever end? Wondering, will my children ever see you? Wondering, will my job ever pay enough? Lord, wondering, will we make it? We need to see Jesus Christ. We need to see him crucified, resurrected, seated at your right hand on behalf of his people in whom he delights. Lord, may we see how good and gracious you are. May that elevate us to worship you today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Exodus chapter 12, starting in verse 33. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And Yahweh had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of dough that they had, not brought, out of, that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves." The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of Yahweh went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by Yahweh to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to Yahweh by all the people of Israel throughout all their generations. Turn over to Exodus chapter 13, verse 17. God gives the people some commands about Passover, unleavened bread, redeeming the firstborn. We've discussed those. And now Exodus 13, verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although it was near. 
For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry my bones up with you from here. And they moved on from Sukkoth and encamped at Etham, on the edge of the wilderness. And Yahweh went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. This is God's word. He is leading his people from slavery to ultimate rest, which he has promised not only to them, but to their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. How does Yahweh deliver his people? When he sets out to save his people, how does he do it? We see here he's going to do it through a journey. This joyous occasion of leaving Egypt It's just the first step. We're not even halfway through the book of Exodus, and we've still got Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy to go. And in fact, you can include the book of Joshua. So this is just the beginning. This is not the end. This is not the climax of the story. This is the beginning. And why? Why did he wait so long? Why did he let his people suffer? Why is he going to take them on this journey that we know is actually going to take them, it should have taken them a few weeks, it's going to take them 40 years? Why why doesn't he just teleport them knowing that they're going to fail, knowing all the things that are going to happen, all the suffering that they are going to endure on the journey? Why doesn't he just teleport them into the land of Canaan? Why does he lead them through the wilderness? Why does he take them the long way around? We've got to see that when Yahweh sets out to save his people, he does so through a journey. Some of you are farther along that journey than others. Some of you have just started. Maybe some of you are still trapped in Egypt, not having experienced the salvation of Jesus Christ. Some of you are nearer the end than the beginning. But what do we need to learn about Yahweh, about his glory, about who he is through this journey? Number one, Yahweh wants you to remember his promise. He's a God who keeps his word. He upholds his word and his name is what David said in Psalm 138. He wants you to trust him him. He keeps his word. Amen? Okay, two people believe. I hope by the end of this sermon, you see that Yahweh keeps his word. This is based, all of this is based on his promise way back hundreds of years before in Genesis chapter 15, when he says to Abraham, Abraham's complaining, he's saying, God, I'm I'm old by now. And you haven't kept your word, and I don't have any descendants. In fact, the heir of my house is a servant from Damascus. He's not a Hebrew. And Yahweh says, no, no, no. 
I'm still in control. I've still got this all sorted. Abraham, you're going to have many descendants. They will be fruitful. They will multiply. But Abraham, he says, Abraham, know this. I will give them the land, but before they get the land, they will be enslaved for 400 years in a land that does not belong to them. And afterward, he says, I will take them out with great possessions. God keeps his word to Abraham, he said, they will be enslaved, but they will plunder Egypt on their way out the door. And he gave Abraham that down payment. That bl- you understand, refugees, when they flee a country, they don't leave with the riches of the government that they're fleeing. The government keeps the riches that they have to leave behind. This is not the way the world works. But by the way, this also partly answers the question of why did God wait so long? Because if you remember in Genesis 15, he said, I'm going to wait this long because the sin of the Canaanites, the Amorites, is not yet complete. I am being patient. I'm a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger. And so while your people are in Egypt, I am being patient and merciful to these people as they fill up their sins. But one day I will judge them for their sins and I will bring your people out and give them the blessing of Canaan. And as a down payment on the promise of the promised land, I will give them the riches of Egypt for the journey. And he turns things on its head because God delights in ironic reversal, right? He likes to turn things on their head. The refugees leave with the wealth. Slaves against the superpower. And look at what's ironic about this. It says the Egyptians were urgent to send the people out. All the time up until this story, they refused to let the people go. Pharaoh had refused. Egypt had refused to let them go. And now Pharaoh says, get out tonight. And the Egyptians, it says, they urged them. Did you know that word urged is the very same word which is previously translated 19 times, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. I am resolved. Get out. Because if we don't drive them out, we're all going to die. And God does this. God, God delivers them through the Egyptians themselves who refused to let them go, now driving them out. And as they plunder Egypt on their way out the door, we need to remember the promise of God as we see it being fulfilled, as we experience the down payment of his promise. That is meant to turn us to worship. We see that God keeps his word, He gives us something trustworthy, something whereby we can measure that, and it's meant to bring us to worship. Notice that as they plunder the Egyptians, their silver, their gold jewelry, their clothing, do you know what's going to happen? They're going to take that, and they're going to use that in the wilderness to build the tabernacle. When they come to build, but they're also going to use it to build a golden calf. Because we do that. God promises us immeasurable spiritual riches in Christ. 
Every, we just sang it, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1 to 13. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ is ours now. We have what Egypt is looking for. All the treasures of, that the world is, what the world is seeking is not a bigger bank account. It's the security that that bank account gives them. What the world is seeking is not merely happiness, but that deep joy that comes from a confidence of peace with God. And we have it. Inner peace. We are given that, a peace that surpasses understanding in Christ. These are the spiritual blessings in the heavenly realms that are ours through the foreknowledge of God the Father, the execution literally and figuratively of God the Son, and the, the down payment and the presence of the Holy Spirit. These are ours, immeasurable. But we've discussed in our series in Ephesians, that doesn't seem to describe our lives, does it? We don't feel like we're living in the wealth of spiritual riches that God has promised. Why is that? It's because we are blind to that because we just aren't ready to trust God. We're not sure he's good. But you have to know it is remembering these treasures that does set you free to walk in your salvation. In the freedom that God gives you on this journey, it is the remembering. But our our hearts are prone to wander. We just sang it. Prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. We forget so quickly what he has done. And so the way that God has designed to set us free on this journey so that we can walk in the freedom is remembering the treasures of his salvation in Jesus Christ. It's not based on how you feel. It is based on the reality that he has set us free in Christ. As the war was drawing to a close, the Soviets were, invent- were advancing through Poland and they were near Auschwitz. Because he was educated and valuable, the Germans transferred Lael, the tattooist, transferred him to another camp, transferred him again to the, the German headquarters in the area where he became a driver and uh, an obtainer, a fixer for the German command. They would give him the gold, the jewels that they had stolen from the area, from the Jews that they had imprisoned. They would give him the gold and the jewels, and he was supposed to go into town and obtain the things that they needed. And one day he took those gold and jewels and escaped. Spoiler alert. If you're going to borrow the book from me and read it, he escapes. Using the very treasures that the German army had confiscated from the people. This is what God does. He, he blesses us with every spiritual blessing that Egypt is looking for, but it is ours now by birthright into the family of God. You don't seem impressed. The world 
we're told, is held captive, held slave to the fear of death their entire lives. But Hebrews chapter 2, verse 15, write this down, memorize it. We have been set free from the fear of death. We're in a pandemic. We ought to be different. We don't fear death. We shouldn't fear death. Because we've been set free. We've been set free from anxiety and depression. This shouldn't plague us. We shouldn't be defined by such things because we have a confidence and an eternal inheritance. Yes, the journey is hard. We're going to see this. But our inheritance, the down payment, has already been given. Our homes should not be in turmoil. We should be set free. Stubborn sins, we have been set free as we yield ourselves to righteousness. Wasting our lives on meaningless things. Chasing after the riches of Egypt. We don't have to chase them. We have every spiritual blessing. We have plundered Egypt. But we must respond with obedience. We have to obey. Look what the says the people, verse 35, the people of Israel had done as Moses told them. And do you know what Moses told them to do? Go to your neighbors, go to your friends, and ask them to give you their most valuable items. Because tell them you're going to leave tomorrow. What? If your neighbor came and knocked on your door and said, give me your most valuable stuff because I'm leaving town tomorrow and you'll never see me again, would you give it to them? It's such a ridiculous thing that they asked. But when God sets out to save his people, he performs signs, wonders, miracles that we would not believe, but we have to obey. And you see, here's our problem. We ask for such small nyana things. Did I say that word right? We're asking for things that don't matter. Keep us safe tonight. Okay, I mean, yeah. But how about asking for revival in Machabang? How about asking for revival on this continent so the crime stops? Why do we ask for such small things? Because we don't think God is who God says he is. And so on this journey, God is teaching us, my promises, when I make a promise, I keep that promise. We also need to see this, though. When he sets out to deliver his people, when he puts us on this journey of salvation, he has a lot to teach us. He teaches us his purposes in our life and in the grand scope of eternity. He wants you to know what he is doing Number one, he is giving you a new identity. Look what happens. Verse 37, the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses. You remember, they were building the storage cities of Ramses and the other one in in Exodus chapter 1. Ramses and uh, the store cities of Ramses and I don't see it. Anyway, Pithom, Pithom and Ramses. Now, again, we don't know the name of the pharaoh of the Exodus. But we do know Ramses was one of the pharaohs of Egypt. And here they are, trapped, 
building as slaves a storage city in the name of Pharaoh. They belong to Pharaoh. They are slaves. But we, having been set free, he wants us to walk in the freedom. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, don't entangle yourself again with the yoke of bondage. Don't keep selling yourself back in slavery. You're no longer defined by whatever sin used to define you. Because the world, Egypt, will tell us you are defined by your sexuality. You are defined by whom you are attracted to. You are defined by an addiction. You are defined by some abuse and your victimhood of the past. We are set free from these things. They no longer define us because they no longer possess us. There has to be a change. We've talked about that. You can't stay. We're not saying that you just swap names, but you stay who you are. No, they had to leave. And they left the city of Ramses and they journeyed to Sukkoth, which, by the way, means campground. One of, the, one of the controversies is people say, well, we don't know where Sukkoth was. We've never found it. That's because the name means campground. It's long buried and gone. You, you don't find traces of a campground. They journeyed to Sukkoth because they were strangers and exiles. Recently, I saw a, a local Bible college that was offering a module taught by Joyce Meyer called The Wilderness Mentality. I thought, oh, this will be interesting. So I looked it up thinking it's going to teach us how to live as exiles in the world. Do you know what I found? I hate to break it to you, Joyce Meyer, false teacher. What I found in her curriculum was just the opposite, not teaching us how to live in the wilderness as strangers and exiles, but teaching us how to overcome the wilderness as if we are meant to live in Egypt. We've been set free. This is what Peter says. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. I urge you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from the desires of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Because the desires of your flesh are going to seek to continue to enslave you. Don't be entangled again as a slave. You're no longer a slave to sin. Instead, we present ourselves, Romans chapter 6, we present ourselves as slaves of righteousness. And here's what the Israelites are doing. Yahweh's taking them out of slavery and giving them a new identity. And that identity is exiles. We are exiles until Jesus comes back. But once Jesus comes back, we inherit the heavens and the earth. That's the promise. So he is trustworthy. On the journey, his purpose is, is to teach us he is trustworthy. He keeps his word. And we begin, to we begin to appreciate the greatness of his salvation. It says 600,000 men on foot. And again, I will submit to you, we can discuss the details of that number, whether it was truly 600,000 men or clans or divisions or whatever. We can discuss that. But the fact is, it's a great salvation. 
Because the original promise of Yahweh is that he would make them fruitful and multiply them. And to Abraham, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. And when we see them in Egypt, 70 people have now become so numerous that Pharaoh fears them. And even in the midst of hardship, God's people, his covenant stands. And we can be fruitful and multiply. And we learn to appreciate each other. The longer you're saved, the longer that you're on this journey, you should learn more about God and about his plan of salvation. But I can tell you from my own experience, the more I learn about God's salvation, the less I understand it. The angels who dwell in the presence of God Almighty, when they saw Jesus descend, condescend, to become one of us, it says they long to look into these things. Not that they don't understand the dynamics of what happened, but why? Why would God do such a thing? Why would he save me? Why would he save anyone? The longer you are saved, the more awe and wonder and worship this salvation ought to give you. And so we appreciate the greatness of his salvation. We appreciate each other. They journeyed together. And we, his purposes, is that we invite Egypt to join us. Look what happens. They go out, a mixed multitude. It wasn't just Hebrews that leave. By this time, the fear of Yahweh had crept into many of the Egyptians, and many Egyptians went with them. We are called to invite Egypt to go with us. Some of these, if you need help inviting Egyptians, I've got some of these. Come get them. We invite Egypt to go, but we're not seeking Egypt's approval. Okay, we don't want Egypt to grant their approval to us. And so we don't live according to Egypt's standards. Too many evangelicals today are giving in to the standards of Egypt. Giving in to the the progressive sexual agenda. Giving in to all the LGBTQ things. Giving in to Marxist ideologies about how humans are to be relating to each other. In fact, one leading evangelical in response to some of the things that went on during 2020 issued an apology saying and and warned the church not to burn our equity with the LGBTQ movement. Here's the problem. Equity is a financial term. It's when you owe someone money and you've begun to pay it back. We don't owe Egypt. We are not in debt to Egypt. And so we don't give into what they demand from us. We only owe a debt to Yahweh. And the debt that we owe to each other is merely one of love. And love for Egypt calls them out of Egypt. Doesn't affirm them to stay in Egypt. The journey is going to be hard. It's going to be hard. They eat unleavened bread. They camp. They live in tents. It says they were driven out, thrust out by the Egyptians. They were not prepared. Living as a refugee is hard. Get that through your head. You are called to live a hard life. As believers, we are called to share in the sufferings of Jesus. 
Paul said, I fill up in my body what remains of the sufferings of Jesus. This is what we are supposed to do. And hardship teaches us to hope. The more hopeless our situation, the greater our salvation. God delights in bringing his people into situations that seem hopeless so that he can show how great his salvation is. We see this in the life of Joseph, most notably. They had been slaves for such a long time. It says 430 years. Again, whether that's starting from the time of Abraham, whether it's starting from the time Jacob arrives in Egypt, whatever time it starts from, it's a long time, and people, some of them, live their entire lives under misery and suffering. But living a long time under hardship is meant to increase our longing. Increase our longing for a better home. Increase our longing for a better fellowship. Increase our longing for a better inheritance than what we can get in the here and now. The young girl that the tattooist fell in love with. The girl that wouldn't share her surname. She wouldn't do that because she was afraid to hope. Because... She felt by giving her name, it only increased her desire to be with him. And she said, I'm nothing more than the number tattooed on my arm. Maybe you are afraid to hope. But what happened throughout their hardship is it only deepened their longing to be free so that they could be together. I'll let you borrow the books if you want to hear what happened at the end of the story. It's meant to deepen our longing, to deepen our appreciation for that day when we are finally and fully set free from sinning. The third thing we need to learn from the journey is the providence. Yahweh does what Yahweh does for his glory and for our good. And there are times when we cannot see it, times when we cannot understand it, but that doesn't change the fact that that is how he operates. And his providence is this, that he is with us every step of the way. He never leaves or forsakes his own. And sometimes, let's be clear, sometimes it is the long way around. Young people, maybe you're feeling like that. The journey ahead seems long and hard. And guess what? Ask the old people. It is long and it is hard sometimes. But there's a reason. Look at chapter 13, what he says. God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines because it was near, because he said the people might suffer the hardship of war and not endure. He knew them. He knew what they could handle. He didn't set out and explain himself and say, listen, we're going to go this way because, you know, this might happen to you. He did what he did, and they didn't know it at the time, but he did it for them. It wasn't his weakness. It was our weakness that was causing him to lead us in the way that he did. And the journey... It's a long journey, and here's the thing. If you're getting frustrated with your spiritual life, frustrated with 
the apparent lack of spiritual growth. You, you want to be further along in the journey than you are. That's good. That is good. But be encouraged by this. The journey is a series of small steps. They journeyed from slavery, Ramses, to Sukkoth, campground, to Etham, on the edge of the wilderness. Do you know what the Arabic meaning of the word Etham is? Small step. This is how God leads his people, one step at a time. And it could be that the frustration you're feeling is because God, like a parent with a toddler who is reaching, and, and you want that toddler to take the step, and you won't take that first step. Right? You're scared. If I let go of the coffee table, I'm going to fall. And so you won't take the first step. But then you're frustrated that your life isn't moving. Maybe you haven't taken the first step of obedience that God is asking. He's teaching us. He has something better planned for us. He brings them to the edge of the wilderness. He's going to lead them through the wilderness, the realm in in, in Egyptian thought, the realm of the demons. And he's going to take them right through the heart of it. He brings them to the Red Sea. He's got a greater victory that he's about to accomplish. They don't know this. They are going to come to the Red Sea. They're going to set up camp. Spoiler alert for next week. Pharaoh is going to come out against them. And they're going to be trapped between the sea and certain death and Pharaoh's armies and certain death. And God's the one that put them there. So that God can accomplish something greater than they could have imagined. They think they're free. God has something better in mind. Because here's what we learn through the hardships of life. Sometimes it's the hardest times that are the greatest blessings. It's hard to see that when you're in it. But as one of the songs we've been singing over the past year, what if your blessings come through raindrops? What if the healing comes through tears? What if a thousand sleepless nights is what it takes to know you're near? Because here's what he does. He leads them, he guides them by a pillar of cloud in the day, a pillar of fire by night, so that they can experience his presence always. Joseph had told them, God will surely. You remember that word surely? Remember where we see that? You will surely die. Well, Joseph says here, God will surely take you back to Canaan. Take my bones when you go. Joseph, Joseph, the one from whom we, the the, the clearest story of the providence of God, God bringing someone through pain, suffering, hardship, so that he can execute his salvation. Joseph recognizes, spending years in prison himself, that what you intended for evil, God meant for good. And that God was at work saving his people, even through Joseph's heartache. The third person in these books that I read, the first book doesn't develop her story too much. She's a friend of of this couple, She is apparently a beautiful woman, and so she falls victim to the commander of the camp. And so she's given better food, allowed to keep her hair. All the other women had to shave their heads. She was allowed to keep her hair. When the Soviets showed up to liberate the camp, 
they see that she is clearly not like the other prisoners. She must have been a spy. The Soviets then take her captive, a woman who had lived for five years in unspeakable horror. They take her captive and she spends another 15 years, 15 years in a Soviet gulag prison. And the horrors that she continued to experience were unspeakable. But what stands out as you read her story is that even in the midst of those horrors, the character that was built into her life, she stands as a hero among the women who were tortured and abused. This is what God does in our suffering through his presence. Listen to Romans chapter 5. Listen very carefully. Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There is the down payment of eternal blessing. Right there. God's promise. Peace with God. And through Jesus, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope in the glory of God. In the midst of the hardship, it is possible to have hope because the down payment of our salvation has been made. Romans 5 verse 3, not only this, but we rejoice in our sufferings. How can we rejoice in our sufferings, Paul? Knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope never disappoints. Because God love, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Because while we were still weak, ungodly sinners, Christ died for us. We don't accomplish our own salvation. God didn't wait for the Hebrews to save themselves. He saved them. He equipped them for battle. He brought them out. And he is going to teach them amazing things. And the number one thing that he will teach them through this journey is that he is with them. And that's the same promise made to you and me today. Not that all of our hardships will end when we follow Jesus but that our hardships, in our hardships, he is with us. Is that enough? Is it enough? If the pain never ends, is Jesus enough? Because in his presence, in the cloud, in the fire, God displayed and fulfills his promise to be with them, to walk with them every step of the way. But there is a better God with us that has come. Better than a cloud, better than a fire. The person of Jesus Christ. Emmanuel, God with us, has descended into our slavery to set us free from being slaves. Are you able to believe the promise of God that he is good even when life is hard? One of our greatest jobs as pastors is to prepare you to suffer and in the day that you suffer, not to curse God. We worship God in our suffering. 
We thank God and we hope, we long for the day when finally and fully the curse is lifted and heaven and earth come together and we for eternity live in the presence of God Almighty. That's our hope. That's our longing. The journey will teach us this. Appreciate the journey. God is good. God keeps his word. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we do cry out to you. Lord, to say that you are good, to say that you are with us, is not to minimize the pain. Lord, the pain is real. The hardship is real. The anxieties in our minds, Father God, while the anxieties themselves may not be real, the turmoil that we feel is real. And so, Father, we pray that through your Spirit within us, you would cause us to see Jesus Christ. Today that we would exalt him. Today that we would live for him. Today that we would rejoice in the salvation that he has wrought for us. Lord, that we would possess this inheritance. That we would be able to know the height and the breadth and the width and the depth of your love for us. You've poured out your love. And Father, our view of your love is so small. Teach us to appreciate how deep your love is for us. To trust you in all things because you are good and you do what is right. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.